John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is who said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. We come to the end of John's gospel. And in this resurrection appearance, the spotlight of Jesus' attention now turns to Simon Peter. And earlier in the chapter, you'll remember that the disciples had been out fishing all night long with no success. Jesus goes to the shore and prepares a meal, bids them come. He tells them to cast the net on the right side of the boat. They have a huge haul. They bring it in. You'll remember Peter dives into the Galilee. He swims to the shore. He is now full of fish tacos. He's dried himself off. And you can almost smell the fresh water and the fragrance of grilled fish. Of course, there's no cilantro or cebolla. There's no pico de gallo. But but I I'm pretty sure it's... That he's full and he's dry. And Peter's failure loomed large on Peter's conscience. Peter's failure had been public and dramatic. And the truth is, when our failure is private, our restoration can be private. And when our failure is public, we often need to have a public restoration His failure was public and dramatic, and his restoration is going to be um, public and dramatic. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who famously said, When your repentance is more notorious than your sin, then it is genuine. And I think that often we do things that we're sorry for. And it was so easy to do what was wrong. And it's so hard to do what is right. And in the journey back, Jesus will give us uh, one great lesson. There is one singular lesson that emerges, and that is that effective ministry and devoted service is impossible apart from the love of Jesus. In the Galilee, Jesus will prepare the disciples' hearts to love in just a few moments He'll prepare them for power in Jerusalem. 
But you need to understand something. That love always precedes power. Most people pray for power. Few people pray for love. But when love possesses you, power possesses you. Look again in verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. At first glance, all three questions sound the same, but they are different. As a matter of fact, when Jesus calls him Simon, son of Jonah, he refers to him by his whole name, connecting the past with the present as the future will begin to unfold. And then he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me more than these? In the original language, the word is agape. Now, Scholars have pointed out that Jesus and his disciples probably spoke Aramaic to one another. And so they think that this is a difference without a distinction. And I'm going to share something with you that I think that there's a reason in John's gospel why he uses the distinction. When he says, do you agape? Agape was a word that was used to describe God's love. It was a, a word that described the character of God and, and the uh, attributes of God. In other words, it's the kind of love that is attached to the character of God. And so he says, do you love me more than these? Now, we're not there. So we can't see the sweep of Jesus' hands. Is he pointing at the boats? Is he pointing at the nets? Is he pointing at the fishing equipment? What is it exactly that he's looking at? Is he looking at the disciples? We can speculate. Is, is he asking, hey, do you love me more than you love your friends? Do you love me more than your business? One Bible writer speculates that the Lord is referring to Peter's former bold assertion. That, remember earlier on in John 13 and in Matthew chapter 26, remember Peter, instead of uh, suggesting that when things were difficult that he would not flee, Peter said, I will lay down my life for your sake, he said in John chapter 13, verse 37. In Matthew 26, 33, he said, though all men shall be offended because of you, I will never be offended. He made... A very huge promise. Maybe you've made promises like that. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for reconciling me to the Father. Thank you for all that you've done. So I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be faithful in my marriage. I'm going to be faithful on the business. I'm going to be faithful on the job. And you found yourself in circumstances where you weren't as faithful as you thought that you were going to be. Peter had made some pretty bold statements. But Peter's confession and expression fell short during the time of trial. And maybe yours has too. But I want you to note something, that the Lord's emphasis is on love. And even in the Christian community, we often make decisions on church leadership that lean towards credentials and charisma and commitment. But the Lord Jesus asks Peter the question that most qualifies a person to serve the Lord. And that's the singular assertion. You know what is the most important thing for you to serve in our children's ministry? That you love the Lord. Do you know what's the most important thing for you to serve in men's ministry or women's ministry or the student ministry or discipleship ministry? It is your heart for the love of the Lord. And so the word translated feed is the Greek verb bosco, which properly means Feed in the sense of what a shepherd would do to sheep or what a herdsman would do for the flocks. Christ's command to Peter, feed my lambs, is linked, even though you may not see it superficially, to the question of love. You see, God's love benefits others. 
And so the question of love isn't, do you have a warm, fuzzy feeling inside of your heart? Is there a singular sense of emotion that wells up inside of you when the Lord Jesus asks you the question, do you love me? What does love bring Peter? A task. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do. We can prove our love by our life. Remember, the Bible says that we love the Lord. We love each other. Love is a privilege and and love is a responsibility. As a matter of fact, later on, years later, Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. And the metaphor speaks of a, of a person exercising tender care. That's the singular description. It isn't complete knowledge of of what it is that's in front of you, but it is a heart determined to care even under difficult circumstances. And our culture and our society confuses love and lust. Unlike lust, God's love is directed towards others. It's not inward and, and narcissistic. And by the way, that's how you can tell the difference between love and lust. Love is going to begin with, what can I provide for you? And lust is going to begin with, what can you provide for me? What do you have to offer me? What are you willing to give me? And the Lord has called Peter to be a spiritual shepherd. And he said, feed my lambs. It's a tender picture of people who are vulnerable and in need. And what a great privilege it is to shepherd the flock of God. Sheep are by nature timid and defenseless. They require protection. And so the Holy Spirit calls and equips people to serve as shepherds and then gives them as gifts to the body of Christ. The Bible doesn't say you wake up one morning and you get to be the pastor or you get to be the shepherd or you get to be this or that. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. It is the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit that calls a person to serve him and love him. We all have gifts that have been given to us by the Holy Spirit in order to provide mutual ministry to one another. Again, one Bible writer puts it this way to protect and to perfect the flock. And I love that. Your gift has been given to protect and perfect the flock of God. This is why you were never called to be a Christian by yourself. This is why you are called to be a part of a body. It isn't about us needing more people to go to our church or you needing to to go to a particular church. It's you fulfilling the gift and the calling that God has placed in your life. And clearly God has called some of you to be mothers and God has called some of you to be fathers and God has called some of you to be business people and God has called you in various and, and, and different kinds of circumstances in life. But whatever it is that God has called you to do it, he's called you to glorify himself and to perfect the body of Christ. And so Jesus will rekindle a, a friend's fervor. Look what it says in verse 16. And he says to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? In other words, do you love me? Is it the kind of love that's rooted and grounded in a decision based on what's right? We're talking about a God-given kind of love. And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I am fond of you. Phileo. I have a brotherly attachment. There is there's a, a sense of decency and and honor and and and, and I have a, a, that kind of a love. It's an affectionate kind of a love. He said to him. Tend my sheep. By the way, here the word tend is. Poi meno. It comes from the Greek word poi men, which is shepherd. And so when he says, 
tend my sheep. He is inviting Peter to participate in the function of what shepherds do. They lead, they guide, they guard, they provide nourishment. Shepherds guard against predators. And then they guide the flock to where they conceive sustenance and nourishment. John Wesley used to instruct young ministers and he would say, do all the good that you can by all of the means that you can in all the ways that you can, in all the places that you can, at all the times that you can, to all the people that you can, as long as you can. In other words, this isn't just a service that results in a change of thinking, but it is a, it's a service that results in a, in a change of speaking, in a change of living. And in verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? He asked him the first time, do you agape me? I phileo you. Do you agape me? I phileo you. Do you phileo me? I'm not sure about everything, and I'm not sure about my feelings, and I'm not sure about my circumstances. And and it says in Peter, it says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. Three times Jesus confronts Simon Peter with the question, really, Peter, I've asked you twice. Both times you responded this way. But I'm going to ask you even another question. Even at that visceral level, even in the internal level, even at the level of affection and friendship, are we even sure about affection and friendship? And part of the point is that Jesus isn't content with the small talk and the chit chat. Jesus refuses to settle for the superficial, the surface declaration of love and loyalty. And Peter is fast coming to grips with his own feelings, his own motives, his own affection. And that's what will happen when you have an encounter with the risen Jesus. It's interesting to me that John describes Peter as being grieved because he said to him the third time, Are you really fond of me? Is your affection genuine towards me? And I'm going to suggest something to you. I'm going to suggest that Peter isn't grieved because Peter doubts that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Remember when Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to come back to life. And Peter asserts that he is going to faithfully follow him, even if it means to death that Jesus knew the truth about what was going to happen. And he says, you know, you are going to fail, but once you've been restored, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Peter knows the truth. Peter knows the truth at least about Jesus. He knows the truth, and I suspect, is it possible, and again, we don't know everything about everything, we can simply assume that what Peter says is in in effect true at, at some visceral level in his own heart and in his own life. Does he really believe that he loves the Lord? I think that the answer is yes. Peter doesn't doubt Jesus. As a matter of fact, he admits, Lord, you know all things. And Peter is now face to face with a resurrected Jesus. And guess what? You can't pull the wool over a resurrected Jesus' eyes. He knows 
the truth of what's going on inside of Peter's heart. And he knows the truth about what's going on inside of my heart and your heart. Question. Did Peter feel like a spiritual failure? Text doesn't tell us. We can't cite a chapter and we can't cite a verse. But if you've ever said you would do something for Jesus and then you didn't, how did it make you feel? And you don't have to cite a chapter and you don't have to cite a verse, but you can look inside of your own heart. Because really the most important question isn't whether or not he felt like he was a spiritual failure. Really the most pressing question for us, at least at this point in the study, is what about you? How do you feel about what's going on inside of your heart? Maybe you've heard Jesus whisper in your ear, Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? By the way, if Jesus asks you, do you love me, does it upset you? Does it intimidate you? Does it frighten you when he asks you again or he asks you repeatedly? Are you something other than what you appear? Are you pretending to be a Christian? Do you love me? Jesus says, And repeats the question, do you love me? And you might say, Lord, you know all things. You know about my immaturity. You know about my past experiences. You know how I struggle with authority unless I get to be the one in authority. Lord, you know how I'm sometimes confused about my own feelings. Lord, you know how I lack direction. Lord, you know that I don't even know what to ask. Lord, you know that I'm lonely. Lord, you know that the world seems confusing to me. Lord, you know that I'm living with bitterness and and, and unforgiveness. Lord, you know about my personal struggle and my besetting sin. Because you can answer one of two ways, can't you? Do you love me? And and it is possible for a person to say, yes, I do. It is even possible for a person to say, no, I don't. It's even possible for a person to say, I don't know. Here's my advice based on the text. It's okay. When Jesus asks you, do you love me, to say yes, particularly if you mean it, and to say yes over and over and over again, Jesus confronts Peter. Jesus calls into question whether their relationship can even be characterized that way, but he's learned an important lesson. Peter's not going to boast And he's not going to make promises that he can't keep. I don't know everything about everything, but I do know this. I know that in my heart, I want to love you. By the way, if Jesus did show up and if Jesus did say to you, do you love me in your wildest imagination? Can you imagine looking him in the eye and saying, No, or I don't know if it wasn't true, or yes, if it wasn't true. Is there anything inside of you that believes that you could look at him and get away with it? And I'm going to suggest something else to you. That Jesus believes Peter's response. Because in each case, the Lord gives Peter a job to do. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. By the way, if he asks you over and over again, you might come to the conclusion, well, there's something wrong or defective in my answer. (laughs) But I'm going to suggest again to you that if the Lord asks you repeatedly, 
you're going to be fine. If the answer is, yes, I do. Yes, I do. You know, Peter might have said, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable. You know, you're a dude, I'm a dude. And, you know, when you say, I love you, you know, it's, dude, we're solid. There, there might be something a little bit uncomfortable. But I suspect that when you're asked the question, do I love Jesus more than my husband? Do I love Jesus more than my wife? Do I love Jesus more than my children? Do I love Jesus more than my family? Do I love Jesus more than my job? Do I love Jesus more than politics? Do I love Jesus more than drama? Do I love Jesus more than my own health or wealth? That the people who are most upset when you come to that conclusion is the people who suggest that perhaps your personal priority ought to be them. But your personal priority is never to be them. Your personal priority is always to be him. Paul the Apostle wrote, Love suffers long. That means it's very patient and it's kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. Love isn't puffed up. Love doesn't behave rudely. Love doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't think evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love is something that you think in your mind and you feel in your heart, but it is also something that is truly and legitimately connected to the character of God and results in a mechanism whereby you live differently in front of other people. And so... God's laws aren't burdensome. And when Jesus boils down the law into two simple principles. He says, love the Lord and then love others as you, in in the measure with which you love me. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and the list could go on and on. And the conversation Jesus has with Peter points to the fact that it's impossible to love Jesus, listen carefully, And fail to serve Jesus. Well, I love him. Really? Yeah, I love him. Are you serving him? Are you following him? Is there really such a thing as a love that's disconnected from service and that's disconnected from uh, from following Jesus? And so... The conversation connects Peter. Loving the Lord, by the way, is is a command, but it's also a choice. Loving the Lord requires everything that we have and everything that we are. And the restoration of Peter includes the privilege of shepherding. But there's a price that the shepherd pays because the shepherd must be willing to sacrifice self in order to secure the safety and the well-being of the flock. And so in verse 18, look what it says. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you don't wish. And we've already seen this word over and over again in John's gospel. Most assuredly, it's translated verily, verily or truly, truly. It's Jesus's way of saying Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, understanding that what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. And remember how we've already interpreted this. Does this mean that the, what he said earlier isn't true? No. That's true also, but he's now drawing special attention to his statement. When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. I, remember I told you that the Bible is a book about real people doing real things? Girded is a a New Testament expression, um, an old King James, possibly New King James, which means you tie your undergarment on. It's underwear. You know, when I first came to Denver, I did a stand-up routine at the comedy store. 
I really did. I was looking for a job. And so I did this whole routine where I did a whole scene from The Princess Bride. And I did this other scene where I laughed in a hundred different languages. And there were some talent scouts that were there. And they were putting together a troupe of comedians in order to compete with Saturday Night Live. ABC was going to try to put together their own version of Saturday Night Live. And so they called me and asked me to... Um, audition and during the course of the audition we have two comedians who are doing role playing and they said okay we're going to do some tv parodies we're going to do star trek the next generation um we're going to have this girl be dr beverly crusher and gino you're going to be Worf. okay here's the scene you're in the examining room um the the doctor's going to give you a physical and go and so this girl comes in and she goes, Worf, strip down to your underwear. And I said, Klingons do not wear underwear. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was hoping. That's what I was hoping. I didn't know how to get out of this. There are times in your life where you think that you can do things and get away with it. And Peter, early in his life, had learned to dress himself and feed himself. And he did what he wanted to do. But God had a different plan for him. As a matter of fact, some 40 years after Jesus makes this statement in verse 18, Peter will die a martyr's death. And even though the event isn't contained in the Bible, there is strong evidence in church tradition. Early church fathers handed down to people the circumstances surrounding the death of Peter. As a matter of fact, Eusebius writes about it in the 4th century as he begins to collect the data concerning what was the eventual outcome of all of these people. And according to Eusebius, Peter would eventually make his way to Rome and, and, and he would eventually preach the gospel and share Christ with a number of different people. And as he's preaching the gospel and sharing Christ, according to the tradition, there's a civil war that's beginning to break out in Rome and the this capital itself is beginning to cap, to collapse and Christians are being blamed and the leadership is being captured and they are being killed and the people begin to plead with P Peter to leave and he reluctantly decides that he will and he gets on his little donkey and he heads out the Appian Way and he begins his exit strategy in order to leave Rome. And according to Eusebius and according to the tradition, as he's exiting the city, he has a vision of Jesus entering the city. And shocked and surprised, Peter says, Lord, Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus says, I I'm, I'm going into the city. I'm going into the city to die in order to glorify my father. And Peter stopped. And he turned around. And he went back into the city and he was captured. And he began to plead, not for his life. And not for the testimony of Jesus. He began to plead. He began to, in humility and brokenness, confess his, his, his absolute unworthiness to die in, in the same manner that Jesus died. And he begged the executioner to hang him upside down on the cross. And so... Some people hate the word commitment because it sounds so permanent. And Peter, no doubt, delights in the fact that he's been restored as an apostle and a leader. And he goes, you know, Jesus, you and I have had this great conversation and there's been a lot of soul searching and, and personal probing. Is it now really a good time to bring up the subject of my death? But when Jesus brought up the subject of God's plan to bring him 
to Jerusalem. When Jesus brought up God's plan in his own life that he was going to be captured and imprisoned and killed and resurrected, Peter wasn't keen on the idea. To be blunt, Peter opposed the plan according to Matthew chapter 16 verse 21. But look in verse 19, it says this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And if you're one of those people who underline your Bible, this is the point where you underline the word glorify God. Because in your way of thinking, when your way of thinking, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, how does death glorify God? I'm going to ask you a question. Did the death of Lazarus glorify God? It did because God was going to use the the death of Lazarus to exercise the, the power of Jesus to bring him back to life. Here's another question. Did the death of Jesus glorify God? The answer is yes. As a matter of fact, when when Paul would later write concerning his own um, life in Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 he says according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain So Lazarus's death glorifies God and Jesus's death glorifies God and Paul's death glorifies God and Peter's death glorifies God. But your death doesn't glorify God. You see, there's a there's a reality that we've got to come to grips with. When a person has come to terms with his or her own death, you know what that means? Now you're ready to live. Now you're ready to serve. You could die. I'm already dead. When a group of missionaries were headed for the South Seas in order to minister to a tribal group that was particularly noted for its headhunting, the captain said to the missionaries, everyone we take here, they always wind up dead and you are going to die also. And they said, we've already died. Our path is clear. When a person comes into contact with the resurrected Jesus and Jesus says, do you love me? And he gives you a task. Guess what? He might also give you a cross. Love always brings responsibility. Love always brings sacrifice. But few people consider the relationship between death and what it means to glorify God. But remember what we've said, that the word glorify is a word that describes the sum and the substance of the attributes of God that communicate his majesty and the plan that he has for you and the gifts that he's given to you and the future that he's provided for you are all wrapped up in what he wants from you. Jesus told Peter, follow me. Read it for yourself. Follow me. In the original language, in the Greek text, it's in a continuous verb tense, which could properly be translated, don't just follow me now, but follow me later. Follow me and keep following me. Follow me and keep following me. And you know what? In in those days, they didn't have GPS. Well, they did. It's God positioning satellites. In order to follow the Lord Jesus, you had to be able to see him. In other words, you had to keep your eyes fixed on the person that you were following. Someone once wrote, the door to success swings on the hinges of opposition. The implication being the moment that Jesus says to you, do you love me? And the moment that you say, yes, I do. And the moment he responds with, follow me, you're going to go somewhere. Remember, I've already taught you this lesson. When anyone ever says to you, follow me, 
it's probably an important point in the conversation to say, where are you going? I remember that poem at Boot Hill. Um, Maybe I don't remember it. But it goes something like, um, I'm not remembering. But it's about a guy who dies and he's in the dirt and on his tombstone, it just basically says, as you are now, I once was. As I am now, you will be. Prepare my friend to follow me. And someone had scratched underneath it. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Matthew ends with the resurrection. Mark ends with the ascension. Luke ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit. John ends with a promise of of the second coming. And Matthew ends with the words, with me. And Mark ends with the words, go ye. And Luke ends with the words, tarry ye. But John ends with the words, follow me. In verse 20, it says, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, speaking of John the Apostle, who also leaned on his breast on the supper. That was during the time of the betrayal at at, at the Last Supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So he's identifying himself. And in verse 21, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Now, again, the key concept here in verse 20 is Peter turning Around Peter takes his eyes off Jesus. And the moment he takes his eyes off Jesus, he sees something or someone else. And by the way, Peter's vision is now clouded by something other than Jesus. And twice before in the, in the New Testament, Peter has taken his eyes off Jesus. After the great catch of fish, Peter refuses to look at Jesus and he says, Depart from, from me because I'm a sinful man in Luke chapter 5 verse 8. And you'll remember when Jesus walked on the turbulent tide of the Sea of Galilee, Peter says, If it's you, bid me come. And Jesus said, come. And you'll remember that Peter looks at Jesus and for a moment, just for a moment, his glance turns away and he sees the tide and he sees the wind and he sees it all roaring and he begins to sink, you know. Haven't you noticed that when you take your eyes off Jesus, that's when you begin to sink? It's when you fail to look at Jesus and you focus on the circumstance or you focus on somebody else. How many times have you looked at the circumstance rather than the Lord? Peter turns around. He looks back and clearly the Lord has revealed to Peter part of his future. But now he wants to know about John's future. Look, Lord, if I'm going to be Pope. I think it's pretty important that I have insider information on the rest of the disciples. Remember Jesus' response? You know what? You have enough problems all on your own. You don't need to meddle in other people's business. Have you noticed that that's exactly what happens when we turn our eyes off Jesus and we look at something else or someone else it, for a split moment, gives us permission. Well, I don't have to deal with my own sin, and I don't have to deal with my own failure, and I don't have to deal with my own job, and I don't have to deal with my own future. But look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Can you imagine Peter saying, Lord, that isn't helpful. Clearly, I should have some shepherd perks. But Peter's job is to follow Jesus. We look to Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. We are so easily distracted. 
Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, this does not mean that we ignore others because we do have the responsibility of caring for one another. Rather, it means we must not allow our curiosity about others to distract us from following the Lord. God has his plans for us. He also has his plans for our Christian friends and associates. How he works in their lives is his business. Our business is to follow him as he leads us. I like that. And so where does Jesus ask us to follow him? In a few short weeks, Jesus is going to heaven. Jesus is going to his father's house. Remember, even in the weeks earlier, Jesus had appeared and he said, I'm going to go, but if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. Follow me. Where are you going, Jesus? I'm going to heaven. Does it mean follow him into heaven? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's part of it. Does it mean follow him in the world? I suspect so. And let me tell you what I mean by that. We are followers and proclaimers of a message of hope. And look at verse 23. This is the saying that went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? In other words, John is very, very, very old. And you know how old, very old is? It's when you look in the mirror and you look just like your mom and dad. <laughs> Jesus asks Peter to follow him to death. And Peter asks each of us to follow him to life. John will go to the island of Patmos where he will write the book of Revelation. After the reign of Nerva, when Nerva dies and Trajan becomes the emperor of Rome, he will, leave, he will leave Patmos and he will go to Ephesus where he will live out his life and he will have outlived them all. And in a very real sense, he sees the coming of Jesus in a vision on an island. And so in a very real sense, the return of Jesus in a series of revelations does take place. But in verse 24, it says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Once again, he reminds the reader that this is the credible eyewitness account of a person who followed Jesus early in life, witnessed his death, participated in a resurrection. Peter was a shepherd. Paul was a pioneer. And then John characterizes himself as a witness. How would you characterize your life and your ministry? In verse 25, it says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. Amen. John writes exactly what the Holy Spirit instructs him to write. No more and no less. You know, in the Old Testament, when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon and she was overwhelmed by his wisdom and his wealth. And when she saw all that that included, she said, they haven't even told me the half of it. I've spent my life studying the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's so little that I know about Jesus. I'm absolutely certain the moment that I wake up in heaven and I open my eyes... I am not going to even begin to comprehend the beauty and the majesty and the glory of all that it means to know him and to love him and to minister to him. William Barclay writes, now he comes to the end. And he comes there thinking once again of the splendor of Jesus Christ. Whatever we know of Christ, we've only grasped a fragment of him. Whatever the wonders we've experienced, there is nothing to the wonders which we may yet experience. Cat human categories are powerless to describe Christ. Human Books are inadequate to hold him. And so John ends with the innumerable triumphs, the inexhaustible power, and the limitless grace of Jesus Christ. In the Galilee, 
He makes sure that their heart is firmly fixed in love. And just in a very short time, he's going to take them to Jerusalem where they will receive power. One last lesson before we go. I want you to fill in the blank. Only you know the answer. When I grow up, I want to be... Yeah. You fill in the blank. What do you want to be? When I grow up, I want to be like Jesus. When I grow up, I want to be with Jesus. When I grow up, I want to be... You see... Knowing God and loving Jesus isn't simply a philosophical doctrine that you embrace. It's friendship and fellowship that you walk in throughout your life. You see, loving the Lord means not just simply allowing Him to be the center of your life, but even the edges and everything beyond. Our goal is heaven. Our path is faithfulness. And our life is a pilgrimage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that when you come and you whisper in our ear, do you love me? That, Lord, we can answer based on a lot of things, fear and doubt and failure Or we can allow your love and your grace and your mercy to give us the sweet privilege of being able to give a a resounding and confident yes. Yes, Lord. And Lord, when we hear you whisper in our ear, follow me. That, Lord, we will be able, with a united conscience, Say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you into the world as a witness to the world. And I'll follow you into heaven. Lord, I pray again for that person who's come here this morning and they're overwhelmed by their fear and they're overwhelmed by their failure. Lord, I pray that you would whisper in their ear, I love you. I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to cleanse you of your sin. I'm willing to wash you of your iniquity. And I'm willing to partner with you so that we can walk together throughout eternity. Lord, extend the invitation that only you can extend. And Lord, hear the response that only they can give. Only I can give. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.